0: Please open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of First Thessalonians again today, 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be in chapter 2 if you want to turn there. I want to give one more shout out for the process of uh, actually doing some memories together. Three weeks from today, we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of our church, and one of the things where we're inviting you to do is remember back to some things that really stick out to you as, as great times, of your time here at CCF. I was just thinking this week, and another one that came to mind, we have had an ongoing ministry to international students over a long time. And I remember back, it's been a number of years ago now, I wanna say maybe, I don't know, eight or 10, and there was a gal that was with us, I think she was from a predominantly Muslim country, maybe Afghanistan, and she was with us very regularly, and she sat about right there, and we had an open prayer time one time. And uh, she stood up to pray, and she said, "Allah, I want to thank you that I've been welcomed into this church and that I'm part of it." And I remember, you know, kind of going, "Wow, I don't know the last time I had somebody pray and address Allah in service. That's kind of a new one." But I saw where she was going, and I said, "Man, close to the kingdom, close to the kingdom." And it was just, it was a wonderful time of just what it means to be a church and to be welcoming people from all different backgrounds. And to preach the gospel very regularly to have people hear that and many of them respond. So I don't know what your memories are. I've got a bunch of them that are kind of flooding back to me. We would love to have those recognized and we're going to actually create a small booklet that uh, will be available that day on November the 6th and I'll have a a compilation of many of our memories in it. So, Rhonda, if we could send out an email this afternoon and give people another link so that you have the opportunity to either email back to Rhonda at office at ccfms.org or respond using the form that will come to you. Either way is fine. We will just go gather those up, and, and we'll have a good time in just three weeks together. All right. We are back in this series from 1 Thessalonians, and uh, I've, I've loved this series because we're just marching our way through the text together And if you'll notice, um, or if you'll remember, we started off a couple of weeks ago, and Paul said, I remember you all the times in my prayer. And he said, I remember you because there's so many great things that are happening with you. And I argued again that this uh, series is called Flourishing, well, because that's what the church is doing in Thessalonica. They're flourishing. He, last week, said, I want to talk to you about our influence with you. What does it mean to influence somebody else And again, my catchphrase from last week was, it takes more than lip service, it takes life service. If you want to have influence in somebody's life, it's going to take the influence of your life. And that's what Paul argued had happened with their visit with them, is that they had had that level of influence with them. Now again, let's remember, this church is facing a a decent level of opposition, and they're flourishing in the midst of the opposition that they are facing. Well, in today's passage, Paul is going to focus upon them. He's focused upon him and the way that he came to them. Now he's going to focus upon them this week. And this week's passage is all going to be about their flourishing faith. What kind of faith do they have that makes them flourishing in this moment? And we're going to pick up again in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is the way Paul writes the letter to them. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I want to start this morning by telling you about a plant that is in my yard. I have got this plant in my yard, it is an oak leaf hydrangea. And you can see it's very aptly named because it's got these oak leaves on it. And by the way, I just took this picture this morning before I came, and it is really turning towards its fall colors. You can see the red that's coming into it and the orange that's coming into it. And I will just tell you this plant right now in my yard is flourishing. Now, it wasn't always flourishing. In fact, this plant about four years ago was at a different spot in my yard. It was closer to up against the house and it was was a shaded area and the plant just didn't, it didn't spread out, it didn't grow. The blooms that are on it, kind of near the top, you can barely see them here, but they're very pretty when they're really in season, and the blooms that come off it are just gorgeous. It wasn't barely blooming at all, and I said, you know what, this is the wrong, this is the wrong spot for this plant. In order for this plant to thrive, I've got to move it somewhere else. So I dug it up, and I moved it to a spot in the yard where I knew it would get more sun, and it had just a little room to kind of spread out, and it has done very well. I would say my oak leaf hydration is flourishing well what does it take to have a faith that is flourishing I'm sure there are many things that are corresponding to plants and, and our faith but I think there's probably some distinctions and differences too that's what Paul wants to drive at with us today is what does a flourishing faith really look like and let's learn from this church in Thessalonica what their flourishing faith looked like and let's apply that to our lives So I've got three things today about a flourishing faith. Let me tell you about those from the text. At first, we need to start off by saying a flourishing faith is one that is at work. It's at work. In fact, this is what Paul says. When we receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is, here it is, at work in you believers. By at work... Paul means that we haven't just received a sum of words. We don't memorize a bunch of religious facts. Paul's saying, no, it takes somehow residence in our lives. When we are in society today and we are saying somebody has faith, I think what we normally mean is that they... Uh, believe a certain set of religious ideas or sayings. In fact, the different definition of, of faith in the dictionary is this one right here. Faith is belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion. So if, if you said she has a Buddhist faith, then she probably believes a set of things about Buddhism. Or if somebody has a new age faith, who knows what that quite means, but they have some kind of new age ideas about, about faith. And so they have certain doctrines that they believe. Now, Paul's not against doctrine at all. He believes there are certain things that it means to be a Christian that you believe. But that's not where he stops. Paul says there's far more that's going on here because the gospel or this message of Christ is at work in your lives. It's somehow making it swell deep inside of us, and it's working its way out into the way that we live. Notice that Paul says when we preach the gospel to you or we preach the message of God to you, You didn't accept it as the word of men, but you accepted it as it really is the word of God. And so you believe God was actually speaking to you. And that's one of the reasons why it was really taking root in you, why it was at work in you, is because you knew that that was the case. When you speak to somebody about the Lord, when you're telling them about the Bible, which I had the chance to do with a friend this week, do you just think it's kind of some nice religious sayings or religious stories that you're telling them? Or are you saying in your own mind, this is the word of God that I'm telling this person? I had a chance this week to tell somebody about the woman caught in adultery. And as I was speaking that, that, that story from Jesus where he's so compassionate upon this woman and really catches short all the men around that are ready to stone her, I mean, I was thinking in my mind, man, this is a story that's been told over and over again, and the Lord has given us this story in order that it might make impact on our lives. And here I am recounting this to a friend that has no idea what this story even is. He heard it for the first time with me this week. Well, here's what I want you to hear is when the the story of the gospel is coming to us and we have a flourishing faith, it means that it's actually at work in us. It's taking root deep in our lives. There's a story from uh, the book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. And he recounts the story that his father told many times from the years that he was a fiery Baptist preacher. He tells the story of a man who came to faith uh, with him, and he says this. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant, but this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed, and God opened that man's heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as tears ran down his face, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, meaning the majority of his life. By the grace of God, even though life is almost totally wasted at the end, It can still be redeemed. As the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston said, our present existence is only a short preface to a long eternity. If that's true, then the man's life was not wasted at all, but he only was just beginning the eternal life given to him and the endless praise that would be his. When we tell the good news to others, we're anticipating that there will be a change in life. That's, that's what we're anticipating, is that this gospel is so big, it's so complete, that it starts coming inside of us and starts making a difference. And things that, well, that I had appetites before, uh, that I don't have appetites for anymore, things that I never thought I'd have appetite for are suddenly coming in forward in my life. I know that happened with me. Again, I came to know Christ a little bit later in life, probably around the age of 20 or 21. And boy, there were certain, if you had told me I would love to pray or love to study the Bible, I would have said, yeah, right. I had no desire for that whatsoever. And if you would have told me, you won't like partying like you kind of once did, I would have said, yeah, right, and that happened. And I suddenly came to the point of saying, I don't have appetite for that, but I do have appetite for this. And so, again, when the gospel comes, the word of God comes, it starts changing us on the inside. It is at work in us. And that is true of everybody who has a flourishing faith. What else? What else does Paul say? This is perhaps the biggest portion of the passage, so I'm going to take a little bit more time on this one. But if you have a flourishing faith, it is opposed. Flourishing faith is opposed. Paul says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And Paul's saying, you were opposed and you were suffering. You were individuals who were having persecution that was happening to you. And honestly, again, this is probably one we don't want to hear. We would never say, well, if I have a flourishing faith, it's probably going to be opposed in some way. But boy, that is the biblical example. We we would like to think, well, if I have a a flourishing faith, I'm probably going to be loved by everybody. But you know what? The, The scriptures just don't hold up with that. The people who have the most flourishing faith are oftentimes the individuals who are opposed uh, among the most. In this section, Paul is expanding on who are the groups of people that are opposing. And it's very easy to see the words that he says, but a little bit harder to understand what he means. Because he says very quickly that it is the Jews that are the ones that are causing the persecution, Now, again, if we understand what Paul's saying here, he's saying that a Jewish group of people are the ones that are rebel-rousing and causing problems. And we could take that one of two ways. Either Paul means that there is a small group of Jews that are pretty rabid, and in fact, there were a group of Jews that kept on following Paul in this second missionary journey, and they'd follow him from city to city, and every new city that he'd go to, they'd show up and they'd oppose him. So he might mean, he might mean, That small group of Jews that are, again, the ones that are most fomenting of of danger and anger. But he might mean all Jews, and he might mean, in general, all Jews have the tendency to deny Christ. And all Jews have the tendency to want to stop kind of this from encroaching on, on their space, their religion. Because, again... Christianity and the follower followers of Jesus, we have this lineage that taps back to Judaism and the Old Testament, so I mean again we 've got this strong correlation i don 't quite know which one Paul means. Does he mean the small group or does he mean the whole group i, I don 't know i wouldn 't die on that hill either way. I know that, but this is what he says about the Jews. He has set six things that are true about the Jews. I have that up here for us. He said they killed the Lord, and again, you could argue again that Again, the Romans killed the Lord, but the Jews were the ones that were kind of promoting that. They drove us out. They displeased God. They're hostile to everyone. They keep us from speaking. And whenever we're kept from speaking, it keeps the Gentiles from believing. So he says, that's bad. And they heap up sins. And so again, is he talking about a little group or the bigger group? I don't quite know, but he's saying this is the group that is somehow interfering and hindering the pressing on of the gospel. Here's what he says. He says something else about these people. He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. And boy, that sounds very like immediate, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like he's saying, well, this happened right now and I could witness it. And he's saying something has happened that is acting like a judgment upon the Jews. And it leads us to say, well, did something transpire about the time maybe that Paul was writing this letter in the world, in the Roman world at that time? And actually, yes, there was. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius somehow got fed up with Jews and he expelled them from Rome. And so I think Paul might be referring back to that historical moment where Claudius says the Jews are expelled and he pushes them out into other areas of the empire, but he removes them from the central city in Rome. And we're not sure quite why Claudius did that, but we know historically that he did. And Paul, I think, is seeing that episode and he's saying that's like a harbinger of things to come. The the Jews need to know that their opposition to Christ is going to have some consequence. And uh, this is a first example, maybe, of that consequence of God's judgment upon them. Again, I'm putting together some historical things there to try to match that up for you. But I think that's what's going on. Here's what I want you to hear. If you are having a flourishing faith, there's going to be people that are going to oppose There are going to be people that don't like what you're doing. They are not going to want to uh, hear you continue on. And they'll be opposing you and trying to stop you in some way. Now, I could give you so many examples today of individuals around the world that are being persecuted or jailed for no other reason than they are Christians. those, Those examples are common and replete. And we could fill an entire service with sadness over that uh, episode that's happening and being repeated around the world ours i think is a in the western world and i'm going to give an example from the united kingdom but i think it's, it exemplifies our own land it, it's more subtle and uh, perhaps it's more around ideas this point than physical uh, repercussions of some kind christina o, uh, odone is a British journalist and a Catholic writer, and she remembers a few years ago when she was invited to speak at a conference on marriage. She says, I was invited to speak at a conference on marriage last summer to be held at the Law Society in London. The conference was a chance for supporters of traditional marriage to contribute to the debate. The title of my talk was One Man, One Woman, Making the Case for Marriage for the Good of Society. She said, I could hardly think of anything that was a more boring and sober topic than that one, and I accepted it without a second thought. A few days before the conference, the sponsors of the event rang me and said, the Law Society has refused us to meet on their premises. The theme was Contrary to Our Diversity Policy, the society explained in an email to organizers, espousing that it does not fit the ethos of what's opposed to same-sex marriage. In other words, the law society regarded support for heterosexual union as discriminatory. So they, they believed that her talk was going to be discriminatory as it held up the traditional view of marriage. Hurriedly, another venue was found at the heart of London, a publicly owned modern building situated across the street from Westminster Abbey. But only 24 hours to go before the conference, managers at the venue told Christian Concern that the subject it planned to discuss was inappropriate. The booking was canceled when challenged. the Center's chief executive cited its diversity policy as the reason for the cancellation. A journalist asked for a copy of the diversity policy, but the Center refused to provide it. By the time I took part at the event, which was moved to the basement in a hotel in central London, I can t- concluded that not only Christians but also Muslims and Jews increasingly feel that they no longer are free to express any belief that runs counter to, pre- to the prevailing fashions for the superficial tolerance and equity policies. Intolerance is now sanctioned when it comes to crushing the rights of those who dissent from the new orthodoxy. Public leaders are at the forefront of attacks, not in its Defense And so she's this example to us, again, of the biblical view of marriage that is falling very much out of fashion in our society today. And we might also say that issues of gender are on that topic, and we are feeling that and the effects of that all around. And anytime we want to hold a more historical view of gender, historical view of marriage... We're gonna feel the weight of that. We're gonna feel the heat of that. Doesn't mean that we don't continue to hold that, but we're gonna continue to feel that. Another one that we're gonna run afoul with constantly in our very pluralistic society is, we believe there's one way to God, Jesus is it. And we constantly preach that because he preached that. And we're gonna run afoul of individuals that are gonna say that we're intolerant for that and that we shouldn't hold that view. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you're going to be opposed if you have a flourishing faith. Now Paul goes on and he says, I want to tell you more about the opposition I faced. And Paul says, I was actually uh, thwarted by Satan himself. Because he says, I wanted to come to you, verse uh, 18. I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And so he's saying this opposition is not only flesh and blood. It's not only people, but it's actually heavenly realms that are somehow in a cosmic way uh, against God and therefore against us and we're not quite sure how Paul was hindered I mean was he sick and therefore he couldn't come Or, or maybe he faced other kinds of opposition that kept him from coming we're not sure what kept him from coming but he's saying it was Satan at work to keep me from coming to you because I wanted to so badly and I kept on being hindered from being able to do that We can't blame everything on Satan, that's for sure. But many times, human selfishness and foolishness are just the things that are happening around us. But it would be wrong for us to also discount Satan and say that Satan has no role in the thwarting of us and the the hindering of our faith because, well, that's a reality that we see scripturally again and again, that Satan is at work. All right, let's summarize. Paul says this, he says, He says, uh, you have a flourishing faith if it as is at work inside of you, and you have a flourishing faith, and you know that sometimes because it's hindered. It's opposed. There is somebody that doesn't want you to continue on with the beliefs that you have. That's a very common and a very flourishing faith. It happens to all of us if our faith is active. And he says one more thing, third and finally, a flourishing faith is rewarded. It's rewarded. Verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And so Paul says that you are this little church that's persevering. And as a result of that, you're my my hope, my joy, and my crown. And Paul used a crown many times as a metaphor, again, for a reward. And he was very clearly linking it back to the Olympic Games. Because at the Olympic Games, there was a crown of sorts that was given to the victors. I've got a picture of what the crown might have looked like. It was a laurel wreath. And at that time, they gave laurel wreaths to individuals who won specific events in the Olympic Games. Today, we give gold medals or gold, silver, bronze. At the time, if you were the winner, you got the laurel wreath. And that designated that you had won the victory in that moment. And Paul uses that crown or that laurel wreath to say... Uh, That's a reward. I mean, you've been rewarded because you've completed the course. You've won the race. And he's saying, I want to tell you, you you're a rewarded group. And I'm a rewarded person because I'm with you because your faith is making it. Every time we uh, have a faith that's steadfast, every time we pray and read the scriptures, every time we have love for one another, another, every time that we remain faithful to our families, all of that is viewed as a reward or it will be rewarded and we're going to uh, again be a reward for uh, a recipient of a reward ourselves and those that have contributed to our lives will say hey Jesus at your return I'm pointing to them Thessalonica that's a church that has persevered and made it and that is a reward for us in our in our, in our joy and our work for you again god talks very often to us about rewards of having a faith that continues on Jesus himself even says in Matthew 19, verse 29, I have that on the screen behind me, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or an- another, uh, or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will re- inherit eternal life. And so Jesus is saying there is this personal reward for all of you if you continue to persevere and you flourish in faith. But the reward doesn't stop there. It's also a reward that we have when others are succeeding whom we are helping. And that's Paul's case. He's saying, I'm receiving a reward because, again, you are flourishing. You're doing well. And so he's saying, again, you're my joy. You're my hope. You're my crown because of your faith that continues on. I want to paint a picture for you today of what it might look like in order to be the one who is rewarded at the end. And I want to tell the story of a football player. His name is Kenny Walker. And Kenny Walker was at age two, uh, the the sufferer of meningitis, and it took his hearing away. And so he was the first NFL player to ever uh, be a deaf player and play in the NFL. But he had a a start in football long before that. He was actually said, I was a little bit of a sad uh, ...child, because he said, I always felt like an outsider. I couldn't hear like everybody else, and so it was a, a real problem for me. But Kenny matured, and he compensated for his deafness. He had a great physical prowess. He had a big frame. He also had a good mind and extensive knowledge of football... ...and an internal focus that allowed him to be really there, present in the moment. And, of course, his high school coaches loved him. And his, he was a coveted, actually, athlete that was being sought by many colleges... Kenny's high school coach asked him where he wanted to play football and he signed the N for Nebraska. He had heard about Nebraska. He'd followed Nebraska football and he wanted to play football in Nebraska. And so they drafted him or invited him to come and he was, uh, had a, a, a translator that was involved in every practice and every game. Kenny was very successful at Nebraska. He was an All-American. He was named the Big Eight Conference Defensive Player of the Year. But his crowning moment came at the homecoming and the final game of the season in Nebraska's Cornhusker Stadium. And traditionally, senior players run out onto the field in alphabetical order, one after the other, and they are given a round of applause by 71,000 cheering fans. Well, in Kenny's case, because he couldn't hear, they made a special plan. And they announced to everybody that they were going to have something special just for him, and that as he came out onto the field... They taught everybody how to have both hands raised, fingers wide apart, and begin to have an applause, which is in sign language, a a sign of applause. So Kenny is waiting underneath the stadium, and names are being announced, and he's hearing the (laughs) of the stadium and all the clapping and all the raucous reward for those players that have finished their senior year and are marching out on the field. And he gets ready to march out on the field himself. He's feeling the stadium, and it's nothing there. I mean, it's just like nobody's doing anything. And he marches out onto the field, and 71,000 fans have their hands raised high, and they're doing the applause, which would be only something that a deaf person would understand. And at that moment, Kenny lost it, because he realized how... Uh, and how how he had engendered himself to them as a football player, and how much love Nebraska had for him as a player. Here's the way I want to end this. Second Peter chapter one says, "And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." And so again, this welcome into your eternal home is part of your reward, and it's a reward for a flourishing faith. What is a flourishing faith like? Well, flourishing faith is beyond simple platitudes, it's alive, it's active, it's rugged, it faces hardship, but God supplies power and reward for those who follow this uh, flourishing faith. It is not stale, it's not lifeless, and in fact, if you're feeling today, maybe like your faith is a bit stale and lifeless... God's calling you. He's saying, I want you to have something totally different. I want you to have a flourishing faith. And, of course, that starts by actually knowing Jesus. You've got to know Jesus in order to have a flourishing faith in Jesus. And so, again, Jesus is saying, come, follow me. He's saying, follow me, and I will begin to make a change in your life. And so we follow Jesus, first of all, by faith. And I'm assuming many people here today most, if not uh, all, have made that decision and you've said, I want to follow Jesus. If you haven't, today's the day to do that. But if you have and you're saying, you know, I just, my faith doesn't feel that alive. It doesn't feel like I'm reading about in the scriptures. Today might be the day where God is calling to you and saying, Ask me, ask me, call out to me, ask me that your faith might be as flourishing as what you're reading in the scriptures. Maybe it's in your mind and in your words but somehow it has to make its way down into your soul and your heart. If you've experienced Jesus, he is wanting to come and give you a flourishing faith. And it's a flourishing faith that is the kind of faith that's like this. It's truly transformative of life. It bears up under opposition. It's fruitful and it's rewarded. And I'm here to tell you today, a flourishing faith is a biblical faith. A flourishing faith is the faith that God has always intended for you to have, And he's calling out and saying today, won't you join me in that? Won't you ask me for that? So let me lead us in prayer towards that end right now. Father, for all of us here today, we're asking you, give us a flourishing faith. And maybe that's a dangerous prayer because, well, we have just read the scriptures about what a flourishing faith is like, and and sometimes it's a hard faith, but it's so alive, it's so real, it's so tangible in life that it's a good thing. And it's the thing that glorifies you and it's something that actually is quite exciting for us to lead that life. What would you have to do? What chess pieces on the board would you have to move in order for each of my friends here today to have a life that's flourishing, a faith that's flourishing before you? Would you you tell us that? Would you convict us about that? Move in our hearts in that and work in such a way that we are individuals that live those lives of glory for you. We thank you again for your scriptures. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who makes all of this possible and it's in his matchless name that we pray.